Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through his word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. What would Jesus undo? What would Jesus undo? And it's been a great, great month, all month long. We've looked at him undoing spiritual sleepiness. We've looked at him undoing a sense of shame, undoing last week the ultimate, uh, I guess, prevention really from sharing the gospel or hindrance. And that's undoing the stone that Pastor Chad talked about falls over our mouths. And today I want to continue in that series. And uh, I want us, if you have a phone, you can take out your phone and there's uh, a digital sermon card. If you want to scan the screen right quick, there's always an option uh, and it'll click up there to our link tree and you can just click on the message card if you want to follow that way. Or if you're old school and have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter one and you can leave that up just a moment uh, as people are taking a picture of it. Acts chapter one, if you have a Bible and I am uh, probably an old school preacher in a new school body. And so, uh, though I'm getting older really, really quickly, uh, I still love to stand for the reading of God's Word. So if you would join me in standing across the sanctuary, we're going to read just three verses in our hearing this morning. Acts chapter 1 is where we're going to look, verse 6, 7, and 8. This is, of course, Luke's second account as he addresses Theophilus, lover of God. He, of course, wrote the Gospel of Luke, and then he chronicles the 28 chapters we have in the book of Acts. Let's go to Acts chapter 1, begin with me in verse 6, and I'm going to read from the screens as they follow along as well. Acts chapter 1, verse 6, 7, and 8. Next slide. Acts chapter 1. Don't have it. Okay, 6, 7, and 8. All right. Uh, Can I read from your Bible right there, Pastor Chad? That would be excellent. Thank you so much. Acts chapter 1, I'm going to read verse 6. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, watch this, Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? These are disciples that are on the Mount of Olives post-resurrection and said, will you at this time now restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has already set, watch this, in his own authority. But, he says, verse 8, you shall receive power. Everybody say power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and then you shall be witnesses, my witnesses, to me in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you so much for your love and faithfulness. We thank you, Lord, for the time that we have together this morning. We pray, Holy Spirit, you would seize and apprehend our attention and our heart, our mind's attention, our heart's affection on you, on due north gospel, and that, God, today we would hear you, Holy Spirit, speak. Each person would hear you speak to them, a desire, the the intention, the calling, the true story that you've invited us into. Lord, we thank you and we praise you for this. In Jesus' name. And everybody said? Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I just want to take the opportunity this morning to walk through this passage. Walk through this passage. Acts chapter 1, verse 6, 7, and 8. I've told you before, I went to Israel a few years back, and and it was a, a profoundly profoundly impactful experience for me. It was not just profoundly impactful because I visited the Holy Land, but it was profoundly impactful because I was there in 2015 on Pentecost Sunday weekend. And in Pentecost Sunday, there was about 70 nations, spirit-filled believers from around the world in Jerusalem at one time. And so it was close to a 2,000-year anniversary of which those first believers, right, were baptized in the Spirit and were sent to the ends of the earth. And I remember in my time in the Holy Land going back to see how Christianity left Jerusalem. And honestly, just how in the world did it leave Jerusalem and make it across the ocean and capture my heart, right, almost 2,000 years later? I come back, and of course, our church is you know, planted or replanted, relaunched, and several years into it, um, we had been uh, having all-night prayers. I think it was our fifth all-night prayer at Dwelling Place Church, and God really put it on my heart in that season to begin to pray that we would have entrance into areas with the gospel. If you were uh, specifically unreached areas, if you were with us, 
we took almost two uh, years worth of all-night prayers and we gave uh, distinct sessions to praying alongside the Joshua Project for unreached people groups. And if you know anything about unreached people groups, um, there are about essentially 61% of people that live in the 1040 window, which comprises of three areas, Northern Africa, the Middle East, and parts of Asia. It's between 10 degrees north latitude and 40 degrees north latitude. And 61% of these belong to unreached people groups. And so this is where these are closed countries, meaning it's not possible or legal, I should say, to be able to preach the gospel. And so we started praying. If you remember this, we started engaging. Well, several months ago, God started igniting my heart to pray for such again. Lord, we know the prophetic words that have been spoken over our church at Dwelling Place. We're not just one church here in Woodstock, but we are in believing God for a church planning movement, not just in the States, but around the world. And so I've almost begun to remind God, I don't know, just this holy sense of responsibility, ambition ignited in my heart. And so a couple of weeks later, a person from Pakistan reaches out to me. And this is really fascinating. I don't know all the ins and outs of what God's going to do, but I want to give you just a snippet. They reached out to me, and to this day, um, we still cannot figure out who gave this evangelist my name. We don't know. Somebody gave the name. She's trying to track down how it happened, how it transpired. But I started doing meetings with a lady named Evangelist Purwa. She's truly an evangelist and missionary. She is Pakistani herself and her brother. They've known the Lord for about six years. And of course, in Pakistan, with Sharia law, you can, you can murder Christians, right? So there's all kinds of persecution. And so I remember the first few meetings, she would just tell me of how many death threats she would receive. And she's not really interested in having major uh, revival in the city. She said, Americans and Westerners come to the big cities of Pakistan and preach. And she said, I don't know why they want to. The Most of the people there have already heard the gospel. I'm looking for Westerners and people who are disciples to come and share the gospel in places that People are not believers, right? We're heavy Muslim-dominated influence. Well, I got on the computer, and probably in, I guess, maybe the third meeting, I'm interacting with her, and I began, I began to feel the love of God for these people. This is not, a, this is not a, a, an ignition of my own heart. This is a work of God's Spirit. The love of God just began to ignite in my heart. And because we have this barrier you know, she's very well educated. I didn't really know what to say other than I just tried to ask them, hey, what should we do? How can we partner with you? What can we do not only in prayer, but in partnership? And so over a long period of time, she scheduled a time for me to share the gospel with one of the villages. It's actually 23 villages coming together in which they invite people in the evening right before the time of Muslim called her prayer. And they feed them and they gather in a courtyard and then they share the gospel. And so we had worked with Skype to make sure, um, you know, all of that would work. And I had prepared and I was praying and asking God, Lord, help me craft the message so it's very memorable. Most of them can't read. They're uneducated. So they have to have audio Bibles. And so then they need words to be able to take to their family members. They need true statements about the gospel to memorize, internalize and then be able to go share the gospel. And so, Lord, just help me craft. And so I started this opportunity, and I prayed, and I asked you guys, even as a church, pray with me the week that it happened just a few weeks ago. So I got on the call, and they turned me around, you know, to face all the people that are gathered in the courtyard, and there were about 300 people, 300-plus people, and there's chickens and, and animals and adults and people of all different age groups. And so, y'all, I just started out with creation, and I just laid it out. I started with the fall of mankind in Genesis 2 and Genesis 3, and then I went to the covenant, and then I said, okay, this is covenant with Abraham and the covenant with the people of God, and then I went to the prophets, and then I got to John chapter 1, which is my main text, the calling of Peter by Jesus Christ, being changed, his name from Simon to Petros. And I noticed as I was speaking that the people on the front began to perk up when I told them that Jesus Christ knew exactly who they were. I told them that Jesus Christ knew exactly who Peter was when he met them, and I told them the same. And as I finished telling the story of Jesus and his establishment of righteousness, I just asked the question to the people gathered. I said with, of course, translator, is there anything that would keep you from surrendering your lives to Jesus Christ today? And of course, at that moment, the translator turned around and said, yes, there's lots. It would change their entire way of life. 
They'd have to give up everything. They're Muslims. They're in Muslim-dominated area. And as soon as he said that, the Holy Spirit quickened me, and I said, yes, that's exactly right. You're tracking with me. You understand now the weight of what we just shared. And I said, but here's the amazing thing. The Holy Spirit right now will give you a new life the moment you confess Jesus, and he'll give you a new heart, and he'll establish you in his purpose, and nothing will be able to snatch you away from his love and his kingdom. And right there, in a back patio somewhere outside Gunjranwala, Pakistan, a boy from Tennessee pastoring in a church in Georgia who got contacted on Facebook Messenger and talked to a new believer in Pakistan, both with tears coming down our faces. Over 200 people asked Jesus to be Lord of their lives. Who, who, Who watched church who you and I will one day meet in glory, who you and I will have forever eternal fellowship with. And so now they want to bring these missionaries to their individual villages. And so they came forward by the droves to ask for prayer. And so just in a short amount of time, a week and a half, we're going to preach in multiple villages, and then we're going to extend the deal and let them come forward and actually confess, and then I'm going to train their leaders to pray for specific needs. They're hungering for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's amazing, amazing what God is doing in the most unreached of areas. It reminds me also of a young man who's part of our congregation now for eight weeks. He's from India. He's right now in India. His name is Varshan. He came to the States and knows Ben, actually knows Ben through a ministry on campus called Bridges. And then not only for Bridges, he became a part of DP Young Adults. And he's just finished his uh, second year at uh, KSU, went back to India, and of course is streaming uh, as well. It's nighttime in India, but streaming, and engaged our church and has been coming, has been really even with his hospitality and love, been transforming King and messing King up with how kind he is to the people around him, but is what? A part of India where Hinduism obviously rules the day, a part of a Hindu family. And if you were here in church the last few weeks, you probably were the recipient of Varshan coming to you if he knows you in the least bit into the lobby and telling you what has actually happened over the last few weeks. So rather than me tell you, I figure I'd let him tell you. Let's watch this quick video. This is what's happened. So uh, basically I was undergoing depression in month of February. I was not doing well. I was not doing well with my roommates. So I spoke to Ben about this through bridges I know Ben. So he he helped me to he said long lot many things about Christ. I just I thought of exploring Christ through through his church. I, I always have an interest to go to church, even in India also, but the opportunities were were not appropriate at that moment. So in the month of March, I started going to this church officially. So first week of March, I went. Second week of March, I went. Third week of March, I went. Fourth week of March, I went. In March, I went most of the time. So when I got my belief was on March 21st. Because he acts, I was peaceful, I was happy, and he acts, he, I feel that he accepted me into his kingdom. And, uh, and his acceptance means a lot to me. So he gave me peace, he gave me courage, he gave me happiness, and whatnot. Then I told Cory, from Cory it came to Ben. I, I, Initially, I was very reluctant in my vision because it, it, it will have an everlasting impact. So in order to, it took, uh, it took time to come to the, the terms with the situation. So I came uh, to terms with the situation in the month of April. In the month of April, where I, where I told to the group, so I got connected. I, I, I wanted to be part of it, all events, 90% of, of events. This is how I came to encounter Christ and DPA thoughts. It's a beautiful journey for me with you all and with Christ especially.
And he'll be back with us in August. Y'all. I am mesmerized and struck by the fact of how serious God is about saving men and women around the world. It's his only goal. It is his objective. It is the desire of God. Like seriously, this guy is coming across the world to try and make sense of his life, to try and get to the bottom of why on the planet would he be placed here, and he runs into a Christian leader from the state of Georgia who did not grow up in India, who has never even been to India, and he comes to know Christ. I think maybe the reason the Pakistani people are messing me up and Varshan's story strikes, strikes me is because I was Varshan at some point. 20 years ago, somebody, I was the Pakistani brother, Pakistani individual, that somebody at some point came and found me. God sent someone in my life to snatch me out of my blindness and to call me into the only story there actually is. And this morning, church, here's what I want to do. I want us to look at this passage, and here's what I'm trying to convince you of. Are you ready? This is it. This is my only point today. Next slide. I'm trying to convince you that the only story that exists is the Creator God redeeming and ransoming and reconciling to Himself men and women from all over the world. There is no other tale. There's no other story. There's no other plot. There's nothing else that matters. Everything in your life, everything in your job, everything in your pocketbook, everything in your bank account is a subplot to that story. There is no other story. This is it. This is all God's doing. It's why you're here. It's why I'm here. It's why I was given life. It's why I have breath in my body. It's why my organs function today. It's why you work where you work. It's why you went to school where you went to school. It's why you were born in the city you were born in. It's why you have the money you have. It's why God has given you the innate abilities and gifts that you have. It's because God is redeeming and renewing and restoring among every tribe, every tongue, every nation on earth. And the crazy thing is, is that we are caught up in it. We are invited into this story. So let's look at the passage. Verse 6, the text says very clearly right in the text that they come to Jesus after the resurrection and they ask him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus has not yet ascended, which is not escapement from the world. It's enthronement above the world. Jesus is not escaping the world in his ascension. He's enthroned above the world in his ascension. And before he goes back to the Father, they ask him, are you going to restore the kingdom at this time? Now, y'all, this is a loaded question. I wish this sermon was an hour and a half just so I could kind of unpack what they're asking by this question. Let me just give you the snippet. The history involved in this question is magnanimous. Will you now restore the kingdom to Israel, Jesus? That question is called all the way back up to creation. So let me hit you real quick. God created everything that is. Nothing that you see, right? It did not come into being except through the Jesus, right? God superintending creation by the Spirit. Next to him, Proverbs 8, the Spirit of wisdom, but then also through the person of Jesus. He created all. So God created everything that is. Genesis 1.26, he created the male and female. He created the image, image of God. He created them, right? He created it all. And then he rests. But then once he creates humans, he gives them what we call the cultural mandate. He says, fill the earth. He says, subdue it and show the beauty and the majesty of my glory by ordering and building all over the rest of the planets. The same thing you see here. I want you to go and do all that I have asked for you to do here. And I want you to feel creation. Feel just like what you see in the garden. And we know that that happy little bit of human history lasted all but two chapters. Because in Genesis chapter 3, sin enters the cosmos and it fractures all of it. At that moment, human depravity begins to spin out of control. It gets so dark and it gets so violent and so perverse. And four chapters later that God says, I'm starting again. He floods the whole earth. He floods the earth in Genesis 6. And he now says, I'm going to create a new covenant. I'm not going to do that again. It's a rainbow in the sky. That leads us 
to Abram, you know, Father Abraham with many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham, and I'm one of them, and you're saying, I got like two church kids in here. The rest of you are like, who in the world? What are you talking about? God comes to Abram in Genesis chapter 12, and this is what he says. I will make you, of you, a great nation, Abram. I will bless you and make your name great. You will be a blessing. Watch this. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And through you, and in you, all of the families, ethnos, of the world will be blessed, Abram. He re-ups that covenant in Genesis 19, and he says the same thing. Your descendants will be more numerous than the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. And he says, in the entire earth, in all of the nations, and all of the peoples, and all of the ethnos, will be blessed through this line. We can just follow the story of Abraham. You go from Abraham, and then you have Isaac, and then you have Jacob, and then you have the people of Israel, uh, people of, of e- uh, Israel that are in Egypt, the people of God. And they grow so mighty that the Egyptians begin to hate them, and so they they enslaved them. So what does God do? He raises up a deliverer from his own called Moses, and he delivers them out of slavery. And then watch this, church. We start to see God's plan take shape. You remember when we see God's plan take shape? Exodus 19, verse 16. They're brought out of captivity, and what does God say to them? He says to them, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy Nation. So what does he do? He gives them the law, and then he puts the law in them. And then what does he do? He puts them geographically right in the middle of the ancient world. If you've ever understood why Israel is where it's at on the Mediterranean Sea, he puts them right in the middle of the ancient world so that the superpowers of the day could see the wisdom of God that's made visible in his people. But like now, his people are pretty bad at staying true to him. So the whole rest of the Old Testament is this just the story of God's faithfulness to faithless people. It's just the story of God's faithfulness. Then we have David. We have the rise of David, or the Davidic code is made. And you have a king. And in Hebrew, the word, literally the word from would, would, word form would have been literally Messiah. And God says you have a king that establishes light. So what happens in the Davidic monarchy? The, uh, the nations begin to see that Israel has become a, super, a superpower in herself. And the people of God are actually in a good rhythm. They're, they're submitting to God. There, there is human flourishing on display. And And God is trying to get the nations of the earth to see that he will cause humans to flourish when you surrender to him. He's trying to communicate to the rest of the world, yes, he's exclusive in the Old Testament, but he's exclusive for the sake of being inclusive for the whole rest of the Bible. And so he pulls Israel to himself and he he exclusively shines his light through Israel and there's human flourishing. And 500 times in the Old Testament, y'all, 500 times in your 39 books do we see the words the nations will be gathered to Jerusalem the nations will come see the holy hill the nations will come to Zion the question that the disciples are asking in Acts 1 6 is a perfectly valid question are you going to bring in all the Jews the people of God at this time you've gotten up from the grave this is the place of worship are you going to now cause the nations of the earth to see you Jesus to worship you they're drawn to the hill of the Lord And the idea that what God is up to is actually global is ingrained throughout the whole Testament. It is amazing to me how many theologians dismiss that today. What God wants to do in the whole world, not just Israel, is ingrained in the Old Testament. And then there's the arrival of Jesus. And Jesus doesn't change things. You know what he does? He doubles down on this idea that the nations are the inheritance. He doubles down on the fact that the world is his desire. God's plan is not to save a group of people, rather all peoples from all or every people group in the world. And what is happening in Acts 1-6 in this moment is that his disciples are still thinking too small. They're still so stuck in the broken way that they had learned. Now, is this the time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, Jesus, is this the time you're going to be like David? Are you going to overthrow Rome and all the nations are going to come to Jerusalem now? Is it now? You've died and you've gotten back up, but Jesus, is that what's going to happen? Did you put us here on the mount? Is the kingdom coming now? That was always their understanding. Everyone was going to come to Jerusalem because that's where the temple was. So watch this. The radical shift that is about to take place is not that Jesus is going to say yes, but rather, don't worry about that. That date's already been set by my father. 
trust me in the mystery. Let me tell you something, church. Let me tell you something, especially why this is important and why that, this verse is such a big deal for you and me. Because you and me are literally a living portion of what's happening in this verse right now. They ask, are you going to make everyone come to Jerusalem, Jesus? Are you going to overthrow Rome? All the people are going to come here to worship at the temple, worship God in this place. And he says this to them. It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has set by his own authority. Y'all, y'all, let me tell you why this is such a huge deal for us. Number one, because we are the fruit of it. What does that mean? It's not that everybody is coming to Jerusalem. It's that the borders of Jerusalem will expand to encompass the whole earth. So listen, when I was in the Holy Land a few years ago, I was not closer to God in Israel than I am right now. I am sealed with the Holy Spirit of God right now. If you're a believer, you are the temple of the creator God right now. If you're a Christian, you are the temple of the spirit. Listen, the Holy Land is amazing, but I'm not closer to God there than I am here. It's not like he can hear my prayers because, you know, I'm closer to his house in Israel than I am here in Georgia. No, he dwells in us. And you don't want to know what's crazy, church? Let me tell you what's crazy. When I went to the airport at Tel Aviv to fly back to to America, I had to take an 11-hour flight going six. 600 miles an hour all the way over to Atlanta. Then I had to take another hour flight, 600 miles an hour up to Tennessee where I lived at the time. That was a long way. And you know what? That is yet in Tennessee, the place where I was saved. That's where the gospel found me. And this is Jesus. Are you with me, church? Standing on the Mount of Olives saying, The date has already been fixed by the authority of the Father. And it's not about everyone coming to Jerusalem. It's about this message expanding to the ends of the earth and drawing to my heart men and women from every tribe, tongue, and nation on the planet. And it was a profound moment for these disciples. Jesus was saying, it's not what you think. It's bigger than you think. Today... I'm telling you, the title of my message, Undoing Our Small Thinking. I'm here to tell you this morning, dwelling place, it's not what you think. It's bigger than what you think. It's not what we perceive. It's bigger than what we perceive. Jesus wants to undo our small thinking. This is the only story. This is the gospel story. The going out, the transforming, the rescuing, the pulling to the heart of God, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation on earth. So they say, hey, Jesus, is now the time? Y'all, can I just say for a minute, I get the question. Like, I'm not beating them up. I get the question. I look around at the brokenness of the world. I'm like, do you want to go ahead and just establish your kingdom now, Jesus? Can we just go ahead and get that thing set up now? Let's just go and get it now. Like, I'm a pastor, y'all. I see the hurt, the loss, the pain. There's never been, never not hurt, pain, brokenness, loss, death, sickness, ever. Did you know I've been pastoring 20 years? Never have I had one week, seven days, where people were like, oh, nobody's sick this week. Nobody's hurting. Nobody died. Totally cool. Everybody's flourishing. I can't go a day. I get the question. Go ahead and set up the kingdom now. It's the fallenness of the world, you and I. I get it. Can the kingdom just come now, Jesus? It's that whole idea of like Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Church, I get this question. But he says it's fixed by the authority of God. Therefore, it cannot fail. It's already been set. And it cannot fail. And this is one of the things I'm trying to convince you of. You ready? Next slide. Investing in the rapidly expanding kingdom of God in every direction on the planet is the most guaranteed ROI you'll ever invest in. It's the most guaranteed return of investment you'll ever invest in. The money, the energy, the gifts, the abilities that we pour into this mission is a guaranteed eternal global REI that nothing else on this earth can actually pay back. 
It's just bigger than you and I can fathom. We have to have Jesus undo our small thinking. We have to get him outside of our little own scope and neighborhood to what he really wants to do. And this message, it's spreading and it will rapidly spread, Jesus said, in all directions. Hey, guess what, church? 2.3 billion of us on the planet today. 2.3 billion Christians. Like, y'all, I get jazzed about this stuff. Can I be honest with you? Like, I have worshiped with men and women in southern Mozambique. The capital. Many of you, I'm looking at faces who worship with us in southern Mozambique. I'll show you a couple pictures. Southern Mozambique in a place called Gumbane, a community. Next slide. This is a place, other individuals who know the name of Jesus. I'm going to show you a quick video because they don't have the Puritan-like Western inhibitions we have when we worship. None of that's there, right? When they worship, it's a whole other ballgame. I'll show you a quick video of what it's like. Tony Jade, our worship leader. This is her preaching to people outside in the village. Like I have, I've been there with Mozambican people, tears flowing down our face, communion, worshiping the Lord. Word of God preached. I've danced, y'all. I, I, there's actually a video. I'm not going to show it to you. You can go to, go to, fa- go to YouTube. It's called Conajid. But I'm in front of 2,000 Brazilians and they give me a little tribal instrument. I'll show you a picture. I won't show you the video, but this is a picture of me in the little tribal instrument. I did my best. I'm like dancing like, y'all, I ain't even good at praise dancing. And I was awesome. I'm going ballistic, right? The next slide, this is me and a bunch of youth leaders in Brasilia. This is, this is here. I'll tell you never. I've stood on a stage inside of a place that Pastor Chad and Michelle had planted a church, which is an hour south of Manila. And in this area, I remember preaching on a Saturday morning and I preached the gospel and I asked for people to stand up who wanted to get born again. And there were over a thousand people that stand up. I said, well, let me make it really clear. I, I, I'm not asking for rededications. I'm talking about people who want to surrender to, and a thousand people stand up. People giving their lives to Jesus Christ. I've been in a house church in Guatemala, right outside Guatemala City and worshiped in a different language. I've been in an arena with Jews in Jerusalem, downtown, right next to the upper room with over 70 nations including a big conglomerate from China that are there and they're all praying and asked to be praying in their own tongue and some of them in glossolalia or the tongue speech. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to show you just a quick snippet. You can just get an idea of what it was like being in Jerusalem with literally thousands of believers. Show that quick video of people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language that are worshiping. Go ahead and show that video. It is frozen. We'll come back to it. happening and it has been fixed by the authority of heaven. Listen to me. You look at me. It can not be stopped. This gospel is going to keep spreading to the ends of the earth. And you hear me? Anything in America that says it will be stopped is propaganda and it's a lie from the pit of hell. The church of Jesus Christ will not be stopped. Jesus says, I build my church. Y'all, there's a graveyard of empires. Did y'all pay attention last fall in Afghanistan? I'm not just talking about Afghanistan. There's a graveyard of empires around the world, y'all. And those empires for 2,000 years have sought to destroy us and eradicate us and eradicate the church from the earth. They're gone. The church is still here. The empires have passed. The church of Jesus Christ continues to grow. It cannot be stopped. And I'm telling you, it's bigger than you think. 
It's not just what you think, it's bigger than you think. And then he says to them, and this is what's amazing. He look, look at the next line. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. In other words, you don't need to worry about when the kingdom's fully visible. That's fixed by the authority of my father. Just trust me in the mystery, Craig. Now, you're going to receive power, what? When the Holy Spirit comes on you. Now, it's important for us to talk about this. No need to get squirmy or flinch when we talk about the person of the Holy Spirit. I think there are two things in view here. Number one, when we are converted and become Christ followers, we receive the Holy Spirit. We are born again by the Holy Spirit. We are regenerated by the Spirit of God. Listen to me. The Holy Spirit baptizes us into the person of Jesus. We then walk to water, and a believer baptizes us in water. But then there's a second subsequent work where, watch this, Jesus baptizes us in the Spirit. So salvation, the Holy Spirit baptizes us into Jesus. In spirit baptism, Jesus baptizes us in the Spirit. And what happens is the Holy Spirit comes and seals us with the, pro the promise. And then watch this, watch this, you ready? Then over the rest of your life, the volume of the Spirit's power can be turned up according to the Spirit's desire, or it can be turned down because of our own foolishness. Listen, look at me. If your eyes have ever opened to the fact that Jesus is beautiful and that you're a sinner and you need grace, that is the Holy Spirit coming on you in power. That's the Holy Spirit convincing you of righteousness and judgment. Like, y'all, what in our cultural moment in America will let you admit you're a sinner right now? No, you're not. It was your parents' fault. It was your coworkers' fault. It was, your, it was, it was somebody else's fault. I mean, it, it, it was their fault. It was, it was your spouse's fault. It's always everybody else's fault. It's only by the power of the Holy Spirit that convicts you of sin to be convinced that I have fallen short of the glory of God. That is the power of the Holy Spirit. Y'all, to love Jesus, it takes the power of the Holy Spirit. Did you know this? To love him, not to just know facts about him. Like, I love him. Do you love him? Like, I'm talking about the person of Christ. Jesus is not like Abraham Lincoln and some historical figure that I know about. Like, I love Jesus. That was the Holy Spirit that did that in my heart. Before I was 17, the Holy Spirit grabbed a hold of me, and I still can't get over it. He grabbed such a hold of me 20-something years ago, and he's never let me process it fully. I still can't get my heart beyond that. That's the Holy Spirit. Jesus said the power of the Holy Spirit will come upon you. He's going to descend on you. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. I want to follow him in righteousness. Do you want to follow him in righteousness? That's the power of the Holy Spirit. Do you want to serve God faithfully to the end of your life? That's the power of the Holy Spirit. And then, church, there are those moments when I'm in a conversation or I'm preparing a sermon or I'm sitting down with a friend or I'm praying for somebody at an altar and all of a sudden, that power begins to be more pronounced than it normally is. You know, the volume goes up. Like, you ever been there before? You know what I'm talking about? You're in the middle of a conversation and it's spiritual conversation that you did not plan for that day. And you're like, whoa, daggum, this is good. Like, where in the world did it come from? Shoot, I didn't even know I knew that. Hope it's true, you know. We'll check the Bible. No, it is true. Look, 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 you're, 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 you're in school and somebody catches you off guard and the volume instantly goes to max. Let me tell you something, church. Listen to me. You already knew it. You had heard it. You had read it. It was in there but the Holy Spirit came and caught it on fire in that moment. You receive power when the Holy Spirit, you all of a sudden get more courageous when you've really been lacking bravery. You ever done that? You ever been in a moment where it's time to witness and all of a sudden the overwhelming courage comes? Power of the Holy Spirit. This is the dial being turned up and that anointing of the Holy Spirit breaking loose. He says, you receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Now listen, y'all. Next slide. This is both internal power and external power. It's internal power to love Jesus and to hate sin. And it's external power to reveal the power of God in, in, in your life and around your surroundings. So it's power inwardly to love Jesus and fight against your sin. And it's power externally in order to empower you to be a witness. Acts 1 and 8 tells us it's about empowering you to be a witness for Jesus. A witness for Jesus. 
What's amazing to me is that when you get empowered by the Holy Spirit, you know what's the first thing that will happen? You will be empowered to testify. The Holy Spirit does a lot of things in Luke and Acts, but the main thing he does is he fills people to open their mouth. He fills people to share the gospel. In fact, anytime you see someone filled with the Spirit in the book of Acts, they proclaim the word of God to others. Can I say it like this? Next slide. Filling of the Spirit here produces the words of God here. When the feeling of the Spirit happens here, the words of God will flow here. That's why it's speech or tongue speech is evidence of what's happening here. When we have something happen here, it flows out of here. Luke one fifteen, John the Baptist being filled with the Spirit proclaims the coming of the Lord. Luke one forty one, Elizabeth being filled with the Spirit proclaimed blessing over Mary. Luke one sixty seven, Zechariah filled with the Spirit prophesied about the glory of Jesus. Acts 2 and 4, the Holy Spirit fills the apostles. They declare God in multiple languages. Acts 4 and 8, Peter's filled with the Spirit and preaches to the people. Acts 4 and 31, the disciples are filled with the Spirit and they speak the word of God boldly. Acts 9 and 20, Paul is filled with the Spirit and he immediately begins to speak in the synagogues. Listen to me. Do you regularly proclaim God's word to others? Are you filled with the Spirit? Are, are, are the feeling of the Spirit here working its way out in your lips here, declaring and testifying to who Jesus is? Now, I want to give you just a real short snippet, if I can, of what's actually different here. Because next slide, the Holy Spirit had, of course, performed an Old Testament ministry, but His work now is introducing three completely new elements. Let me tell you the new elements that are involved in the receiving of the Spirit in the New Testament. First of all, it was to be universal. Prior to this point in Acts 1 and Acts 2, the coming of the Holy Spirit had always confined His work to the nation of Israel. There is no record in the entire Old Testament, right, where, where He falls upon the Greeks or the Romans or the Babylonians. But now He's coming to bless all people everywhere, including men and women, sons and daughters, children. He tears open the whole wineskin. Here's number two. It was to be permanent. What do you mean permanent? In the Old Testament, when the Holy Spirit came upon people, he departed from them. So he, came, he comes upon Samson and enjoys the presence of the Holy Spirit. And then what happens? God's Spirit leaves him in Judges 16. What happens in King uh, Saul's life, right? Same thing. The Holy Spirit comes on him in 1 Samuel 10. But what does he do? He leaves him in 1 Samuel 16. Now, in the New Testament, we never have to pray in moments like that because the, 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 the reality is it is permanent. The Spirit of God comes to live and abide in you. Here's the the third element Jesus is introduced in Acts 1, 6, and 7. It's thirdly to be perfecting. Look at me, church. I want you to understand this. The Spirit's new ministry would now to make all repenting sinners grow in grace and be like Jesus. That was not the case in the Old Testament. There was no indication that the moral and spiritual nature of anybody who had the Holy Spirit was improved. They were only given power to do something. Doesn't mean their nature was changed. They weren't growing in, in necessarily in moments into more Christ-likeness. But Jesus says something altogether different. Then he moves from there. He says, for what reason are we given this power? We're not just given this power for power's sake. We're given this power so that we would be his witness. Now, witness to what? I think it's a pretty important question. There are several things in view. What were they witnesses to? Let me just tell you real quickly, church, what they were witnesses to. They were witnesses to the life of Jesus. Everybody say life of Jesus. Let me tell you this is a big deal real quick because Jesus, his life, his perfect moral righteousness will now be imputed to us. Now that's huge. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. If you want to know what God, how he responds to people, look at Jesus. This is what the New Testament argues. Jesus is the express image of the invisible God. Look at me, church. God has always been like Jesus. We have not always known that. Now we do. The unveiling of the Old Testament is the slow unveiling of the nature of God until we finally see God's nature per perfect in the image of the Son. You know what God's like? You want to know what God's like? Look at Jesus. What's God's tone towards broken people in Woodstock? 
What is God's tone right now to your family member who's lost? Look to Jesus. You struggling with some pretty significant screw-ups in life? Anybody got any significant screw-ups? Look to Jesus. What does he do? What, didn't Jesus reach down and lift up the chin of the woman caught in adultery? Doesn't he reach down on the ground? And isn't he tender with her? Doesn't, isn't God's tenor and love and tonality one of great love and empathy for somebody who's hurting? Doesn't he say to her, hey, does anybody condemn you? Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. What does he say? to Zacchaeus. Hey, what would God think about a tax collector, that despicable little man? He says, come down, I'm meeting at your house today. What does he say to Matthew, the tax collector who literally imprisoned people with great, and it caused all kinds of rape in the the Roman Empire against Jews and all kinds of craziness. What is he going to do to a person who's helping fund that? Here's what he says, leave your life previous and come and follow after me. What does he say to hot-headed Peter? You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. Jesus. What does he say to a man who has failed miserably? I mean, is there anybody in scripture who one time says, you're co-eternal with the father? Hey, well, I must go to Jerusalem. No, you want. And he takes him off and rebukes him. I mean, he literally is called blessed and he's called right after that Satan. Is there anyone as slow as Peter in the Bible? But what does he say? Come and follow me. And these are God's people. Look at me. You are God's people. How can we be so sure? Because we're witnesses to Jesus' life. But not only are witnesses to his life, we're witnesses to his death. They were witnesses to his death. They, these men saw it. They were terrified and they bailed, remember, right? Didn't they, didn't they bail on him when he was dying? They saw him die. If you ever go to the Holy Land, you know what struck me is how tiny everything is. Some of y'all live in Jasper and Ball Ground, and like your little lot is about the size of Jerusalem. I'm not kidding. You go and it's like there's where he was flogged. Oh, there's where he was crucified. Oh, there's where he got up. Oh, there's where he sent the Holy Spirit. I mean, it's all right there. It is, it is crazy how small that thing is. It's all right there. They saw him die, y'all. They saw him brutally beaten. They saw the snot come out of his nose. They saw blood flow from his side. They saw the sorrow come from his eyes. They saw a Roman centurion take a javelin and lock it up underneath the rib cage of our Savior. They saw him die. And that's important. That's really important because there's a lot of really, really ugly things in my heart. And I have no way of paying for those. I have sinned against a holy God and there's not enough I can do to tip the scales in my favor because there are no scales. So the death of Jesus is the evidence that he has moved towards us as sinners regardless of our story. Look at me, look at me. The death of Jesus on the cross is the evidence that God is serious about rescuing you from a life of sin. They were witnesses to his death. We are witnesses to his death. They were also witnesses to his resurrection. You're not ever going to forget these. There's four things we're witnesses to. Life, death, resurrection. Like Paul's argument in Christianity was not, trust me, trust me, it's true. He actually argues that 500 of us actually saw him rise from the dead. Although some have fallen asleep, he said. He's saying this from the point of eyewitnesses. Y'all, like in what court of law on the planet does 500 people saying the same thing not guarantee something's true? Right? Take a court of law, any nation you want to pick. 500 people saying the exact same thing? That is true. He said these men saw him. We are witnesses of his resurrection. Y'all, if he was not raised, I'm still in my sins. But can I tell you this morning, I'm not stuck in my sins. I hate my sin. I make war against my sin. I get some victory over it. Yes, of course, it lingers and pops up here and there, but I have chosen violence against my sin. I've chosen not to co-fully, co-equally kind of hang close and have a pet sin. No, that's the work of the Holy Spirit purchased on the cross and sealed by the Spirit. If you have a hatred towards your sin, it's because you're a witness of his life and his death and resurrection. It's because the Spirit of God is in you causing you to hate your sin and to love Jesus more, to move away from your selfishness and your own self-will and to move God and to God and his purposes. We are witnesses to his life. We are witnesses to his death. We are witnesses to his resurrection. But then fourthly, we are witnesses to his teachings. Now listen to me, church. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. Jesus said that after my ascension, the Holy Spirit's gonna come. Watch this, and he's gonna do one thing. He's going to remind you of the things that I taught. Look at me. That means my whole life now has to be a witness of what he taught. 
if the Holy Spirit came from the Father through the Son to remind me of what Jesus taught, what is my life a witness to? What he taught. What he communicated. What he preached. And that becomes what we're witnesses to. We are witnesses. Now here's the amazing thing. You ready? If you're a Christian in the room right now, you've experienced all these things already. You've experienced the life of Jesus. Next slide. In his imputed righteousness to you, he sent his life to you. When you accepted him, you received his life. You've experienced the death of Jesus in the death of your slavery to sin. When you were bound to sin, you have experienced, watch this, the resurrection of Jesus and the fullness of life that has been afforded to you by the sealing of the Holy Spirit. And then where do you have the teachings of Jesus? Right there in the Bible that's sitting in your lap. And these teachings have been embraced and enjoyed and rejoiced in by the people of God. We are witnesses to his life, his death, his resurrection, and his teachings. Now, with that said, where exactly are we going to be these witnesses? Well, I'm glad you asked, because that's the last part of this passage. Where will we be with these witnesses? Notice what he says. Here's the first one. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Y'all, this is not saying we must board a plane and head to Jerusalem. Unless you're called to be there, and there are Christians, Messianic Christians that are ministering there and planning churches and disciple-making in remarkable ways in one of the most unique parts of the world. He's talking to these men about where they live. He says, you're going to be my witnesses. When? Where you are. You're going to be my witnesses. Where? Where I've placed you, Jerusalem. So think of this as your neighborhood. Think of where you currently live. Where are you a witness? In your neighborhood. Where are you a witness? In your workplace. Where are you a witness? Where do you play? Where are you a witness? Where do you get a cup of coffee? Where do you witness? Where do you teach? Where do you witness? Who do you hang out with? Where do you witness? Who do you see in your office each week? Where do you witness? Who is it that's in your life? Who, where do you witness? Where do you go around town? Where do you witness? Who do you pay at the gas station? Where do you witness? Where are you? You will be my witnesses to what? You'll be my witnesses to my life, to my death, to my resurrection and to my teachings. Where would you do it? Where you are. I'm trying to argue with you this morning, church. You should never be bored again. If I see another Christian put on their page, I'm bored this weekend. It's like, oh, I'm going to blow up. You should never be bored. You have everywhere around you to be a witness. You have people that need to hear the gospel. You have people that are surrounding you that you can creatively, strategically partner with the Holy Spirit to ultimately open your mouth and be a witness to. This is bigger than just Sunday, and it's bigger than just moral goodness. He has uniquely wired you and uniquely placed you as his witness where you are, right where you are. But listen, it's not just Jerusalem. It's also Judea. You know what that is? That's just down the road. It's not just your neighborhood. Judea is kind of like, we would say, the metropolitan area, metropolitan of Atlanta. But then he goes, and also Samaria. You know what Samaria is? Now we're crossing the ethnic lines. Now we're ministering to people who don't have the same skin color as us. Now we're talking to people who, who don't have the same language as us. See, we went to Samaria. Jesus went to Samaria, didn't he, in John 4? He went where Jews wasn't supposed to be. He's now connecting with people of a different color. He's now reaching out to people. He's trying to understand. Love seeks to understand understand, not rather be understood. I'm trying to talk to another person, understand their point of view. And I'm trying to engage them. I'm trying to creatively become all things to all men that I might what? I might save some. And then he says to the ends of the earth. Now, I love this part of the verse church, because here's where we get it wrong. We tend to think in a linear fashion. He said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. Not then, he said, and, and this is where the Lord has ignited me. This is, this, is the, this is the crux of today. This is where God has so ignited my heart in this season. This isn't do a great job in your neighborhood, and then when you do a really good job, I'll let you go do it in Atlanta. And then once you do a really good job in Atlanta, I'll let you do it along uh, Samaria or ethnic lines. And then when you do a really good job there, you can go to the nations of the earth. No, that it's not, this is a call to reorient our lives around the mission of God to seek and save the lost and means we do it in our neighborhood while we're doing it in Atlanta, while we're doing it across boundaries, while we're doing it to the ends of the earth. We're called to be witnesses in all aspects. And why? To establish justice and righteousness to the ends of the earth. Can I just tell you, church, this statement from Jesus becomes the whole paradigm for the book of Acts. Next slide. They witness in Jerusalem for seven chapters. They witness in Judea and Samaria for the next six chapters, five chapters. They witness to the ends of the earth for the last 15 chapters. 
That verse becomes paradigmatic for the entire expansion of the gospel. Can I show it to you real quick? I've started studying something called cool visual unit. I want to show you the cool visual unit. First of all, Genesis 22, there's a lamb for one man, Abram. Exodus 12, there's a lamb for the family. Leviticus 17, God prescribes a lamb for the nation of Israel. In John 1, he's a lamb for the whole world. And when you quote the passage that Pastor Chad quoted this morning, the one worthy to open the scroll, in Revelation 4 and 5, he's a lamb for eternity. This is Jesus. So uh, I want to show you this real quick. Look at the expansion of the gospel. The gospel starts in Jerusalem. You see where it's at? In the middle of the Mediterranean world, that's the first four chapters. Go to the next one. The gospel then spreads to Judea and Samaria, chapters 6 through 9. You can read about these. I'll post these on our social media today. The next one, the gospel spreads to the Gentiles. goes Phoenicia up to Antioch and Cyprus in 9, 11, 12, 13. Then it goes from there to Europe or Asia Minor in 12 through 16. It's moving up to modern-day Turkey and Lystra and Iconium and Derby, where Paul was stoned. The next one, it goes to the Europe and it spreads to Thessalonica, what we call Asia Minor, the seven churches that we find. Even the epistles of Paul gives in Greece and Corinth and Athens. And then from there, it spreads or is on the way to Rome when Acts ends. And guess what? It's now made it all the way across the Atlantic Ocean. And it saved your soul. And this is what you've been called to. Look at me, church. Listen to me. I'm trying to argue with you this morning. This is the whole point of your life. Anybody want to talk to me about the talk to me about the purpose of your job? It's just right here. Anybody want to talk to me about your family and your marriage? What's the purpose of my family? Anybody want to talk to me about your money that's in your bank account? What's the purpose of my you may want to talk to me about the gifts and talents you have. Why God gave you Why am I drawn to this leisurely activity and other people are drawn to other leisurely? Why did you get this house but didn't get that house when you put money on that house and didn't get... This is the only story there is. This is it. And the amazing thing is, you can deviate from the story, but even then you're still stuck in the story. And God will draw you back to him. So what should we do? Let me just lay out a couple of things. Come on, man. If this is what God is up to, and the only story in the world, we can do three things. You ready? We can go, we can send, or we can disobey. There's not really a third play. So we can go. Craig, you mean go overseas? No, here's where we start today. You go home today. You start to see your neighborhood as a place that God has placed you. Can I challenge some of you? Would you, some of you mind to prayerfully consider prayer walking your neighborhood as we move through this summer? Begin to prayer walk your neighborhood. You know what my wife asked me this week? Craig, what book can we do? Because I think we can get them in with a book. What book can we pick that's an entrance ramp of neighbors in our neighborhood and get them to start coming to our house? I'm going to talk to you more in the summer as we look forward to the purpose of connect groups and what connect groups are going to look like this fall. But could you begin to invite your neighbors into your home? for meals and just share what Jesus has done in your life. Don't judge them. You're, you're sharing what Jesus has done. Begin to develop meaningful relationships with the coworkers. It means you look at your exercise class or out of a CrossFit and you see it through the lens of, man, I've been placed here as a witness to the life, the death, the resurrection, and the teachings of Jesus. I think all of you should eventually get out of this country at some point and see what God's doing around the world. Listen, if you hadn't sung to Jesus in a language you don't understand yet and in a style of worship that's strange for you, then I just think you hadn't seen the full scope of God's power and might yet. It's unbelievable. It is unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Or you help send someone. So you go. You go, you sin, or you disobey. Look at me. Reorient your whole mindset around the purpose of life. This is what God's doing. The only thing that won't fail. Can I, can, I want to look at you in, in confidence today. I want to tell you something. If you will invest 
in the ever-expanding kingdom of God, listen to me. It's the only thing I can look at you with right now and I can tell you it will not fail because it's the one thing the Father has already set by His own authority. It will not fail. Like how privileged are we, y'all? Like we're a long way from Jerusalem. I asked the Lord this week, I said, how did it get here? How did it get to Brian Arnold? Brian Arnold came to me on February 9, 2002 and invited me to his house on a Saturday night. And then he took me to church the next morning. How did it get to Brian Arnold? How did it get to Brian Arnold's parents? How did it get to Brian Arnold's grandparents? How did it get? How did it get from there to there and that story and that family? And now, now it's our turn. It's our turn. How will it get from these mouths to the mouths of an up-and-coming generation? It'll get to these mouths because it'll come from our mouths. And it's just a long line of just everyday people being faithful witnesses where they are. Would you say this with me? Say, God, please undo my small thinking. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.